0: Their resilience, their, th- the fact that they were away from all the trouble and that they had survived all the troubles at sea, I, I, just, I can't describe it except to say they, were, they just inspired me.
1: Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen-Ming, and welcome to Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People a show that brings you the stories of hope, survival, and resiliency of the Vietnamese diaspora. In the next few episodes, we will take a look at the Vietnamese refugee crisis through the lens of three women who played a pivotal role in the lives of many. While none of them were refugees themselves, they each were dedicated humanitarians who made an impact. So most people don't know that in the early 1970s, there were less than 15,000 Vietnamese living in the United States. But when the Vietnam War ended in 1975, roughly 140,000 Vietnamese who had ties with the American army were evacuated from their country. The US organized evacuations were followed by hundreds of people trying to flee the country in small fishing boats, and by 1978, That number grew to hundreds of thousands. As a result, the UNHCR established makeshift refugee camps in response to the crisis. These camps were established in neighboring Southeast Asian countries as a temporary solution to the humanitarian crisis of the Boat people.
0: There was a story in the the Straits Times on the the refugees out there. And I was a member of the Singapore American Association, the women's group. We were meeting right after that story came out. It was decided that they they would like someone to go out there and assess the situation of if there was anything that we as a group could do to help the refugees.
1: In my search to retrace my own refugee journey, I came across Meredith Kennedy, a mother, wife, and a trained occupational therapist who was among the first group of volunteers at the Singapore refugee camp at 25 Hawkins Road. Meredith's husband was head of government and union relations for General Electric Company. Their family relocated from the United States to Singapore in October of 1977.
0: I was attending classes at the Singapore School for the Deaf at the time, learning, you know, American Sign Language and and so forth.
1: 25 Hawkins Road was the site of a former British barrack. Meredith and Judy, a psychologist, and Sally, a high school teacher, were among the first to register as volunteers
0: at the camp. All right, when I went out there, I felt very sad that first day we went there for what they'd been. I could see the trauma. But at the same time, and I think we all felt that way, that we could help and we wanted to help. We were all very concerned about the fact that they were just there squatting on the, on the, you know, the, the, the street side and, and sort of staring into space and the fact that they had nothing to do and was not good for them. So we decided we had to do something to give them some meaning to their life, help them actually physically. We collected clothes and, you know, things that they needed because they had, there was nothing. Some only had the clothes on their back. So we walked up and down the the street and we just said, can anyone here speak English? And then Mr. Fung uh, came up to us and said, yes, he did. And he said everybody would be delighted if we would start teaching them English. He gathered, he, he sent runners around and gathered all the people up, and we met in one of the in one large room in one of the houses that they had there, and that was the beginning of the English school and eventually multi-language school at uh, the Hawkins Road Refugee Camp. First, we said we're just going to teach the adults, but the used to hang on the windows and, and want to take part. And if we were outdoors, they would they would try so hard to, you know, say what we were saying and act out things that they made it so much fun that it was they they just added so much to everything. In the early days, is me teaching with everybody squatting on a porch and me just using a, a, a picture that I cut out of a magazine. I used to drive my husband in place. I'd be tearing things out of magazines and, and, and newspapers and things, but that was all I had for teaching materials. Citizens of Singapore, and it was a large international community, and all the different countries were just wonderful. I mean, we started out with just English, but I've even lost track of how many. The Norwegians were wonderful. So from every country, they sent they sent clothing, and and uh, they would go out and try to help, and, and they volunteered. And people, I know I got a lot of books for the school from uh, just people reading about it and hearing about it in the United States, sending books that we could have to use for the school from from the United States, from all over the world. So, I mean, people, once they knew what was going on, were very compassionate.
1: In addition to teaching them the English language, Meredith thought it was also important to teach them things about nutrition and ways to acclimate to colder climates, things that she felt would be useful after they resettled in Western countries
0: donated clothing and items, and I set up a department store, you know, some of the other teachers, and we set it up and had people that, you know, make cash registers, and we had prices on everything, and of course, naturally, the first thing, some, someone came up, and they said, and had a price on it, like, for $10, and they said, I give you five. And we said, no, you can't do that at a store. In the United States, you don't bargain. If it has a price, that's the price. But see, those are the things we needed to teach them. And like the Norwegians were wonderful because they taught them how to knit. Both they could knit for themselves and sell things when they got to the cold countries. And we had diet education on how, you know, different change of diet you have to have in cold countries. But I consulted with, like the Save the Children and the Ford Foundation and different governments and the Asia Foundation on them on the best ways to set up education programs and what they needed because it wasn't just learning a language; it was learning culture.
1: Almost thirty-two thousand people arrived in Singapore during the years that Meredith was actively teaching.
0: Some were in a state of depression. Uh, The children generally were the happiest, so they were in generally better spirits, but most of the people were, I, I would say, they were very resilient, and we all had a lot of admiration for them. We had some who had to see, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists because of the terrible things that happened with, you know, pirates and, and cannibalism and all that kind of thing.
1: Some of the boats that had arrived in Singapore were previously pushed back out to sea. They later found out that some refugees were attacked by the Malaysian armed forces. Women were targeted and raped. Though she was just a volunteer, many of the refugees confided in her. There was a woman who was a victim of assault on her journey to Singapore. The woman remembered the details of her ship's attackers and later went on to report her story to the UN, but only with Meredith
0: by her side. This very smart woman onto their ship and she memorized the number of the ship and she memorized the insignias on their sleeves and eventually uh, the, you know, the UN reported it and uh, the CIV of of, um, Malaysia and Singapore uh, cooperated. And even though she could speak English, you know, it was such a trying time. They came and took testimony, and she wouldn't do it without me because she trusted me. And sitting through that was probably one of the most hard-to-believe things.
1: When I asked Meredith... What does she remember most about the camp? She smiled and said she remembers Hong. When she first met Hong, he could barely make out any sounds, let alone speak. He was also mostly deaf. He had no immediate family with him and hardly any friends as he couldn't communicate well with anyone. Meredith began to tutor him personally, teaching him to communicate by writing in English, teaching him sign language, and to also read lips.
0: Eventually, I discovered because of my training that he did have a bit of residual hearing and I started teaching him how to talk.
1: Meredith wrote letters to the Singapore medical community to find him a doctor and through donations from other volunteers
0: she was able to get him a hearing aid. The day that I was, he had his hearing aid in and I was taking him back into Singapore for a checkup with the doctor, and he had his hearing aid in. And I just happened to have a cassette that I played on myself of Rodrigo's guitar concerto, and I pushed it into my tape recorder. And I looked up, and he was sitting in the back, and there was tears streaming down his face.
1: Meredith worked closely with Hong to improve his speech, and the two of them bonded. The camp was like an extended family to her. All of the volunteers that she worked with and the refugees that she met, they were very close. One of the volunteers would always go with the refugees to the airport when it was time for them to leave and resettle to another country. Eventually,
0: it was Hong's turn to leave. He found out because he had no way to communicate with me because he couldn't speak on the telephone and he had memorized the bus routes and he appeared at my house one day to tell me that he was leaving.
1: After telling me the sweet story of her friendship with Hong, Meredith reads a clip from her article to me.
0: I left the airport I heard the roar of the jumbo jet taking off. Hong was beginning his journey to the United States. I knew inside the plane, Hong was hearing the sound too. For him, it was the sound of freedom.
1: You can find Meredith's article, The Sound of Freedom, in the UNHCR publication archives. Eventually, Meredith had to stop teaching because of health reasons. After being hospitalized twice for exhaustion and losing her voice, the doctor gave her
0: a choice. He said, you can either save the world or save your voice. So I decided I would just go into a, uh, you know, working behind the scenes, much as I hated giving up my teaching.
1: Meredith left Singapore in 1981.
0: It changed the direction of my life because when I came back, to the United States, I immediately started working with literacy volunteers.
1: Meredith hasn't been back to Singapore since. She says it's not the Singapore I know, as there are no traces left of the camp. She said it would be too heartbreaking to go back.
0: It was just wonderful. We had wonderful parties, and they and, uh, and had music programs. It was very sparse, there wasn't much there. What they did have was appreciated by everybody. Their resilience, their, th- the fact that they were away from all the trouble and that they had survived all the troubles at sea, I, I, just, I can't describe it except to say they, were, they just inspired me.
1: Through Facebook, she has recently connected with some of the refugees, but she still wonders about Hong and where he is today. Last she heard, he joined a monastery. I asked Meredith if she still volunteers today, and she says she tries to. But in her retired years, sometimes it's difficult to be as active.
0: You should never take anything in in life for granted, because things can change at any moment. I think that we have to remember that people do not flee their homes and give up their whole life and go into such dangerous situations lightly.
1: But even in her senior years, Meredith is still impressive. She just finished what they call a super senior marathon, where she took two months to walk 25 miles. And she's currently taking a writing course for seniors at a local college. She's working on her memoir. I hope you enjoyed listening to Meredith's story. Not only was she a volunteer, but she was also a friend during a time when many of the refugees had lost confidence, dignity, and self-worth. If you happen to have found refuge at the Singapore camp at 25 Hawkins Road and want to connect with Meredith, follow our Facebook or Instagram page at Vietnamese Boat People and search for details on episode eight. And a quick shout out to our associate producers, Trisha Vung and Matt Young for curating this episode. And stay with us for more inspiring stories coming up in the next few episodes as we continue the theme, Faith in Humanity. I'm Tracy Nguyen-Ming, and thank you for listening and helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast platform and follow us on Instagram at Vietnamese Boat People. And if you have a story to share, email us at stories at Vietnameseboatpeople.org.